millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine. This week, we've got a bit of a special edition for you on the theme of, and I promise I'm not exaggerating here, how to run the world. That might sound over the top, but there are already so many ways that the COVID crisis has turned things upside down and made the unthinkable into the irresistible, and it seems a good time to think big. And we're extremely lucky to have not one, but three stellar brains to help us, all of whom have written big pieces for our new June edition. The esteemed historian, Margaret Macmillan, on what seven centuries of crises, from the Black Death to COVID-19, can teach us about coming out of this crisis in one piece. Nairi Woods, who's the Professor of Global Economic Governance at Oxford, who has written for us about the scapegoating of the World Health Organization. And then also, last but certainly not least, the Harvard economist, Darney Roderick, who sets out his plan for a new, better form of globalisation after the virus. Now, you may notice the format's a bit different. Um, Prospect usually hosts a series of regular events and talks at our offices in the heart of Westminster. But we're locked out like everyone else, of course. So we've convened the discussion of our first ever webinar, inviting subscribers to join uh, us on the Zoom call. We hope you enjoy listening to the webinar. As and when we do more, we'll keep you posted on our website and on Twitter. Uh, so do keep an ear and an eye out for that. But in the meantime, lend us your ears as we discuss Rebuilding Planet Corona. And given that rather grand theme of the magazine, of the, of the, of the question, the discussion that I suggested at the outset about how to run the world, I think to ground us in the news, it's probably best um, to start with Nairi, who's joining us from Oxford, um, because um, the bit of global governance that we've got that deals with pandemics, no respecter of borders, of course, is the World Health Organization. So we've got a bit of governance there, Nairi. How's it working? Well, um, I think the first thing I'd say is just to remind everybody why international cooperation is so essential in this crisis. You know, there are, there are just 10 countries that supply almost every medical 
device and treatment that the world needs. And those 10 countries need to be getting those devices and treatments to every other country in the world. Just to understand this virus required China to report it, to share the genome sequence, which it did on the 4th of January, and for the World Health Organization to make sure that every country got that uh, recipe, if you like, for what this virus is and was able to start immediately working on tests. In other words, no country can fight this virus on its own. And if countries do try to fight this virus on their own, they're going to fight a much longer, slower, and more difficult fight with a huge consequence for politics and economics. In other words, for crisis and for catastrophe. Having said that, there is quite a lot of cooperation which is working. And I think it's important that we don't just focus on political leaders who stand up and trumpet kind of xenophobic nationalism, because there's quite a lot that's working. So the World Health Organization has been, um, it, for a start, it did get China to report to it. It did share the virus. There's a lot of critique about whether days were lost or weeks were lost, just as there's a critique about whether subsequently the United States or Britain lost weeks in, in responding too slowly to the necessary um, lockdown measures that were required. But the fact of the matter is that the cooperation was there. It meant that information did get to countries and then it was up to countries to either take action as some did, Germany, South Korea, took very swift action and were able to fight the virus. But moving forward now, there's another two areas where the world has to be cooperating right now in the emergency. So the first is obviously to find treatments and or a vaccine for the virus. That's the next stage in fighting it. The second is to have the economic firepower to fight it. And there, to be fair, the United States, the European Union, the Bank of England have stepped forward. By mid-March, the Federal Reserve Chairman, regardless of what the US President might have been saying or doing, was extending credit lines to countries, making it possible for 14 or so other countries to start using economic firepower to deal with the crisis, supporting the IMF to do the same for poorer countries. Um, making it cheaper for countries to use those swap lines. And here we're talking about something quite important because the United States is number one in the world at mm. having the capability to just print money. So its ability to back up other countries is really crucial. So that's so right. Now what, hmm. I mean, it's, it, yes, sounds, it, it sounds like, um, uh, you know, we've got some global governance and some of it's working despite, in a way, a lot of the political game playing it's obviously going on, and we've seen um, Donald Trump say he's going to defund the World Health Organization. Um, I imagine there's quite a lot of people in the Federal Reserve are probably quite relieved if he doesn't know what a swap line is, because then he's not able to turn it off. But um, uh, Nairi, um, quite a lot of people who aren't like Donald Trump, um, some very distinguished kind of people who you think of more on the liberal side, have also been attacking the World Health Organization, haven't they? In, I don't think there's, you know, there's no international organization that doesn't get absolutely crucified in any crisis because international organizations are by definition slow and clumsy and difficult to use. Because for a start, no country would use an international organization if they could deal with the problem on their own. Mm -hmm. When an international organization tries to move, 
It has to move with the agreement of every single government. You know, there's no voter in Britain that elects a British government in order to be told, by the way, we're not going to do anything, we're going to let international organizations do it all. There's quite an important reason why the World Health Organization has to broker agreement from governments. It can do nothing without the consent of governments. And that means it has to work very closely with them in order to persuade them that it's safe for them to share information with us. So when the World Health Organization went to China and said, share with us what's happening in Wuhan, if China simply said, no, go away, that's it for the World Health Organization, game over. It's not like they have an army to send in to force China or the United States to do it. When, they were, when the World Health Organization a year before this crisis was begging countries to get ready for a pandemic, it didn't have any coercive power to bring to bear. It could only advise, beg, and plead governments to cooperate and to follow its guidance. Even now, in the middle of the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of governments kind of follow each other in herd behavior, as our government response tracker shows here at the Blavatnik School. But what they're not doing is following World Health Organization guidance. So the organization can only be as strong as the government members, and that's Britain, the United States, China, Germany, all the governments that belong to the World Health Organization are, as it were, you know, the, the plug that permits it to work. It's only if they share information with us that the organization can do its job. Yes, it, it can be criticized for being slow. It was criticized for being slow to declare a pandemic, but that's a multilateral process. It has to call uh, an emergency committee to declare an epidemic of international concern in the first instance, and only when it gets the agreement of those specialist experts from a variety of different countries can the organization make that declaration. And again, this isn't just stuff that we should do away with. It's only because there are all these safeguards that countries feel safe sharing information. Because in a world where Cambodia, for example, says to the World Health Organization, we have a new virus, and the World Health Organization responds by saying, right, world, everybody shut off Cambodia, have nothing to do with the country, it's got a virus. That's a world in which no country will ever admit to having a virus because they will lose everything. And so um, it's just as well from your point of view that we've got the World Health Organization, even if it's kind of like attacked a lot during the crisis. Um, but what are the vulnerabilities that you've seen? What would you want to see different in the way it's set up or the way that countries play into it? So it, it needs to be well-led and well-managed. And quite a lot has been done on that front since the Ebola crisis. It needs to communicate quickly and effectively. And again, it's made real progress on that. We can't, look, we can't ignore the funding of the organization. The entire funding of the World Health Organization is about equal to a lar one large American hospital. And only 17% of that is core funding. All the rest is funding for special projects. This is a tiny, tiny budget for the world to put into protecting the world's billions of people from a pandemic. So, you know, I don't, money on its own is never the right solution, but we, you need to equip an organization with enough budget for it to actually be prepared to act in a pandemic. And it's the member countries of the World Health Organization that haven't done that. If President Trump goes through with his um, 
stated ambition to remove all funding from the World Health Organization, and perhaps, as some in his administration suggest, to create a new organization, they'll simply spend hugely more money creating a new organization with logos and a brand and a headquarters and a staff, and they'll spend, you know, they'll put a huge cost on the rest of the world, either running both or creating redundancy. The, the solution to this is not to keep creating brand new things and creating a huge refuse heap of organizations. It's to recognize that the reason why they work less quickly and less effectively than we want is of our own making as member states and to make them work better for all of us. Margaret, thank you, Nairi. Um, Margaret, you've um, looked through seven centuries of crises, like I say, and you've talked about the social contract, but if we focus on that particular question of the way countries do or don't um, work together in crises in the way that Nairi is really calling for there, um, I mean, first of all, do they tend to work together when, when, when required? And um, if, if it's only some of the time, what can we do to try and encourage that? Well, I think the bigger the crisis, um, the more we're faced with the need to work together. And that's true domestically as, as well as internationally. Unfortunately, it comes right up against our instinct to protect ourselves and to look after ourselves. And we've seen it in this very unedifying scramble for medical supplies, which has actually not helped anyone, I think. Um, and you get states in the United States outbidding each other, perhaps stockpiling stuff they don't really need. But I think the natural sort of tendency, or what a natural tendency is to try and look after yourselves, and that doesn't always help. In fact, it, it is often the opposite. And so I think what we have to do, it seems to me that systems that are strong to begin with have more chance of dealing with sudden crises. You know, you cannot predict when there's going to be a crisis on this scale. And that is something we're learning. I mean, few of us have actually lived through anything like this. There will be people in different parts of the world who have. But we're not used to such challenges and we're not used to not knowing. And we're not used to not being able to deal with it. I mean, we, I think we've, a lot of us in the West have, have grown up in a world where everything can be fixed. And a new illness comes along and a new, virus, a new, new vaccine comes along. Or we have a natural catastrophe, but it's somehow dealt with. And so I think we've, we've developed a rather complacent view that whatever happens, we're going to be okay. We're going to be able to fix it. And we're now finding ourselves in the midst of a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And it seems to me that the institutions, and this applies to the international order as much as it does to, to individual states, that are already strong perhaps have more chance of actually dealing with the challenges of an unexpected and massive crisis. I think what's also important, I mean, there are a number of things that are important. What's also important, I think, is that you do have good leadership. And I think we're realizing more and more that leadership actually does matter, that the role of, of a leader is, is a reassurance. It's to talk honestly to people. And, and I think Nairi and others, and, and Danny Roderick have mentioned this, that too often we've had I think in the, in the past few months, political leaders not coming clean, not admitting how difficult things are. I think we respect our leaders more, at least I do, if they say, look, we don't know what's going to happen. We're in a period of radical uncertainty. We're going to do our best. We're going to work it through. But I think there also has to be a trust that, that, that leaders have in their own people. If you don't trust your own people, um, and I think the British government actually was very afraid of doing a lockdown because they didn't think the British public would go along with it when in fact, as it turns out, the British public has probably gone further than the government would have done and was already beginning to lock itself down even before the official lockdown was announced. And so I think that's important. 
but I do think, and, and Nari is absolutely right, I mean, our international institutions are only as good as the countries that are supporting them. And what I think is, is so damaging at the moment is this attempt to blame the WHO for everything, to blame the WHO for failures of different national governments, and also this invidious, and I think very unproductive attempt by different governments to blame each other. You know, these stories that have been put out that the virus was made in a, in a lab in Wuhan, or the story now being put out that it's to do with cell, cell phone towers, or stories being put out in China that it was actually the Americans doing germ warfare. This is not going to help us all at all. And we're dealing really with a global crisis. Um, and it's, of course, not just a, a medical crisis. It's turning into a global economic crisis and global political crisis. We have got to work together and we have got to strengthen our international institutions. I mean, I think we just have to hope that enough people will, will see the importance of that. But um, Margaret, one thing that's amazing about your piece is just the, the sheer breadth of examples that you're able to draw from and you look at some of the most gory and appalling things in the long history of humanity you know the 30 years war the napoleonic wars the um slightly lesser english civil war um and all of these you say have kind of in the end been crises that have turned out to force a kind of rather magnanimous reconciliation um and uh, have allowed people to work together who maybe couldn't before well, not all crises end happily, I think, but sometimes things can be so catastrophic that we do actually take a look at ourselves and say, we can't go on doing this. And I think after the Second World War, for example, the Allied powers recognized that another world war on that scale, they feared it would be the end of civilization altogether on this planet. And so they set up the United Nations and its allied organizations, including the World Health Organization, and they set up the Bretton, Wood organi Bretton Woods organizations to try and manage the world economy. And so I think sometimes, I'm not always, and, and we wouldn't choose to do it this way, but sometimes out of great catastrophes, you do get a recognition that we just can't go on like this. And that was true after the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. It was a catastrophe for Europe. I mean, parts of Germany were depopulated by as much as two thirds of their population. But what the powers eventually recognized is they were in a game that was losing for all of them. And in the long run, they needed to set up a different sort of system. And so at huge expense and cost in human lives and, and much else, they did pre create a new system. It doesn't always happen. We don't always learn, but I'm, I'm hoping that out of this one, we are going to learn. I suppose then that becomes the question, Margaret, doesn't it? Is in the scale of crises down the years. You say this isn't one we've um, lived through the likes of before, but it's not the Black Death either. It's not a third of people dying. And so is it bad enough that it might mean that things that would have been unthinkable start to happen? Well, it may turn out that the actual death toll from the, from the, the COVID-19 is not going to be the thing that really creates the crisis. It's going to be the economic disruption. It's going to be the costs of the lockdown. I mean, we're already beginning, and, and of course these calculations are enormously difficult to make, but we're already, already getting calculations of how many people are dying because they're not getting treatment for other sorts of illnesses, and how many people are going to die because they're not going to get enough to eat, or how many people are going to die because of domestic violence. Um, how many people are going to die, in other words, as a result of our measures taken to contain the virus. And so I think we are going to see, and I, Danny Roderick is much, and Nairi are much more equipped to talk about this than I am, but I think we're going to see a prolonged period of economic upheaval. And I think the costs and consequences of that are going to take a while for us to really estimate and, and come to grips with. And uh, I'll bring you in now, um, Danny, if that's okay. Um, 
I mean, you've thought long and hard about the model of globalization that we've got and how it delivers for some, but not for many, maybe not even for most that you've written about in your stuff on trade. What connection do you see between COVID and the possibility of getting something done about that, of rewiring the planet, if you like? Well, I think what uh, COVID-19 does, uh, among many other things, it just um, uh, highlights for us um, how, um, you know, some of the wrong terms we've taken in international um, institution building and where we have chosen uh, to invest our collective political capital um, in getting a global order. I think Nairi is absolutely right in emphasizing the importance of uh, international cooperation with respect to global public health. And, and this um, crisis uh, really is a, is a very um, uh, tragic reminder of that. Um, and, um, and, the, and, the, and the question is, um, when we look back at the last 30, 40 years of globalization, um, whether in fact our political leaders um, have um, invested too much um, in uh, building a particular model of um, uh, economic globalization, which I call hyper-globalization, um, that has served the interests mostly of um, international banks, international corporations, the very skilled in, uh, professionals in the advanced countries and in the developing world, but hasn't done a whole lot for um, uh, the middle class and the lower middle class in the advanced countries. Um, uh, instead of um, emphasizing and, 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 um, and putting their efforts um, into areas where there is true uh, global public goods that need to be provided. Uh, climate change um, is one such major area. Uh, the second um, major area, which of course is, is, is uh, what we've been reminded of now, is, is global public health. Um, you know, sort of coming up with tests, uh, information exchange, uh, coming up with vaccine. These are all fundamental uh, public goods. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we would have been far better off um, uh, having built a much stronger uh, World Health, Health Organization. And again, I think Nairi is absolutely right that international organizations or international cooperation doesn't work um, by um, uh, having the ability to enforce rules from the outside. Uh, nation states are nation states and, and you can't enforce these rules um, no matter how strong these institutions are. Uh, but what they do is um, through you know, years of, of uh, cooperation and norm building, uh, they develop general um, expectations about how um, nations act, what they're supposed to do and what's within the rules of the game, what's not within the rules of the game. Uh, that's, I think, in the uh, trade and investment arena, what the OECD has done, that's what the WTO has done, that's what the IMF has done. Uh, it's not because they have armies that they can send into nation states, but because they have developed norms of good behavior uh, that, in fact, um, um, we see the way that crises are playing out is, you know, in the 1930s, we had countries, um, you know, sort of raising tariffs and, and um, uh, into sort of a, a kind of going into a trade war. Um, you know, now we say, well, you know, they're raising tariffs too, and we worry about protectionism, but in all honesty, it's nothing like the 1930s. I mean, this norm of uh, keeping borders open is by and large in, in place. And I think 
Um, and, and that's, I think, is, is an important achievement that the international uh, economic order um, uh, has, has, has gotten us. Um, and I think I would put the, uh, the, the, the major, um, I would credit um, the first three or four decades um, uh, after the Second World War with the creation of the Bretton Woods Institution as having essentially established some basic rules and having developed these norms. Uh, but I think after the 1990s, our, our priorities went um, um, somewhat, uh, you know, were very skewed. Um, and I think we've, we've achieved rather um, unbalanced and very fragile outcomes on economics. And we have not achieved um, the kinds of things that we might have achieved with respect to uh, public health, uh, environment and climate change, human rights, which is a, another big, um, I think, um, a, you know, global um, uh, uh, public good. and. Um, and, and other areas where uh, cooperation at this point, I think, has, has much, um, much greater payoffs. Uh, one thing I found really refreshing and interesting about your piece was the idea of using economic logic and saying we need to define the public good and the spillovers very, very technically and carefully, but use the economic logic to say we shouldn't really be focusing on the economy, we should now be focusing on other areas. Uh, yeah, actually, that's that, that's a good point. I mean, I think this is something that that Margaret, um, you know, a point that Margaret stresses in her piece, and and she also mentioned it in passing, is that you know crises um, uh, produce um, uh, outcomes that can sometimes, as you suggested, bring us together, um, and other times uh, they actually you know uh, result in. Uh, settlements that, in fact, um, uh, produce greater discord and and uh, and magnify uh, the costs. Um, I think you know the after the Second World War, the response to the war, the creation of Bretton Woods, that was a good uh, example of international cooperation, as, as Margaret um, has written at length and very insightfully. After the world First World War, uh, the settlement in Paris was actually one uh, that wasn't uh, very conducive to a lasting uh, lasting peace. So I think you know where economics and I think the kinds of principles that that I tr I talk about in the piece come in is in their sort of you know their their power to to anchor our expectations and our narratives about what are the right directions to move in um, in terms of saying you know here is where we ought to be putting our emphasis on and sort of you know in terms of disciplining beggar thy neighbor policies or providing for global public goods. Well, it turns out that many areas of economics don't actually fit in because, as I say in the piece, um, in economics, um, virtue is its own reward. Mm. Uh, so countries, you know, are, are supposed to pursue good economic policies, not because this, you know, to provide benefits to other countries, but because good economic policies, their rewards uh, essentially are reaped at home. Um, and, and when countries do not pursue good economic policies with adverse effects uh, for their trade partners, it's not because you know, we have lack of international cooperation, it's not a failure of international governance, it's a failure of domestic governance. Uh, that is their own domestic policies that are not working well to produce uh, the kind of, of uh, desirable economic policies from their own national standpoint. Now, in those kinds of settings, uh, we cannot actually assume that simply having more international cooperation or more global rules or more international cooperation will push countries into what's more in, in a more desirable direction because it's just as likely that what international cooperation is is a bunch of big pharma getting together a bunch of international banks getting together 
multinationals getting together and writing a set of rules uh, that actually uh, move the in individual political settlements within countries in the wrong direction, further in the wrong direction rather than the right direction. So having a good sense of what are the circumstances under which we have a very strong normative case for international cooperation, for establishing global regimes and global rules is very important in pushing us, in, the, in, in, in moving us or at least anchoring the, our, 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 our expectations as in terms of you know, wh what we ought to be doing. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you. Um, Nairi, um, uh, whilst I was, um, re the, just after I read uh, Danny's um, first draft of his piece, um, uh, I, President Macron stood up and gave a speech which was pretty much exactly in line with it. So I thought, so I sent Danny an email saying, you know, has the French president been hacking into your computer? Because he's talking about a new grammar of ma multilateralism, less obsession about globalization uh, when it comes to the economy and much more on health and other areas. Um, and suddenly I thought, blimey, like, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't just a point about economic logic. Maybe there might just be a political mood for this. You know, he said we want a new grammar of multilateralism. I can't imagine an English politician speaking in quite such um, French or abstract terms. But like, do you think, I mean, we can see all kinds of extraordinary things happening on the domestic front, the government paying everyone's wages. Do you think there might be a political mood to reset globalisation? Well, I think there's a couple of things in that. And I think the first, you know, and this is what uh, Dani was just saying, is that the mindset has to shift. Already after the global financial crisis in 2008, people started, um, you know, the, the main, the majority of people in different countries started seeing globalization as something for which they were expected to make sacrifices and seeing all the gains from that globalization accrue to a small number of people. And so we already saw the backlash to that model. And I think coming out of this crisis, every politician, whatever side of any political spectrum they sit on, is going to have to, and again, it echoes the, the rhetoric of the, uh, the post-Second World War, 
um, period that Margaret writes so eloquently about, every politician is going to have to frame this as security at home for people, mm. secured through cooperation abroad. But they, they have to come back to this concept that as a government, they owe their own citizens security. And that's not just security for those that have global businesses. That's secure opportunities, which come from proper investments in education and housing and health, just as happened in the 1940s and 50s in the United Kingdom. And it's only if citizens are assured that they're being offered security at home that they're going to be comfortable with cooperation abroad. And my main point would be that these two are not in competition with one another, that you absolutely have to have international cooperation on things like pandemics and climate change, as Dani said, in order to be able to give people security at home. So it, it can't be instead of, um, and nor can you do it without. So security at home, cooperation abroad. A lot of that, I think, chimes, uh, Margaret, with the, with the two sides of your piece, the domestic and the international. I think I'm right in saying that there was one moment in 1940 where the British cabinet approved a plan to merge the nations of France and Britain. Uh, and that, I just, that came to my mind listening to some of what, what you were saying that like things can just change extraordinarily um, fast, you know. Um, I don't know if it's one of those moments or not. Well, it's a, I think things are changing extraordinarily fast. I mean, we're seeing governments do things which two months ago they wouldn't have contemplated. I mean, the way in which they've been spending, the way in which they've been propping up the economy, the way in which they've been in Britain, for example, paying for workers to be furloughed from their companies. I mean, this seems to me absolutely extraordinary. And once that's happened, I think it's more difficult to go back. Governments can't go back and say, well, we can't afford it because they have been affording it. And of course, in wartime, they afford it. Um, we know that if, if, you know, if, if we know the history of war. And so I do think possibly that's important. You know, it's an important sort of psychological barrier has been breached. What concerns me, and I, I agree so much with, with both Danny and, and Nairi, that, um, you know, that there, is, there are needs for national and regional solutions. I mean, often governments know best what their own peoples need and, and want, but that has to take place within an international framework for dealing with truly international issues. What concerns me always is the question of, of leadership. And at the moment in the United States, we have a Republican party which is talking about more tax cuts for the very wealthy mm. and is being supported. And this is the thing that, that strikes me as, as curious after three years, but it is being supported by a lot of voters who are in fact being hurt by those policies of favoring the rich and, and favoring the big corporations. And how we get around that, how we, how we talk or how parties talk to voters and talk in a way that makes the voters aware of, of the things that they need. Now, and at the moment, particularly in the United States, you, you, you see, you know, those people who are out demonstrating, open up the country again. They, they may be a small minority, but they represent an important strand of opinion, which doesn't trust government, which somehow doesn't make the connection between the policies that this particular government's been following and their own perilous economic situation. And how we overcome that, I don't know, because I think that's one of the things that, that populist parties do very successfully, is they divert people's attention away from real social and economic problems and, and get them engaged in culture wars or, or get them focused on external enemies or immigrants or whatever. And so it, it seems to me you know, that we have a, a real challenge before us 
in trying to make a case, if we, if we believe in it, which I do, for more inclusive societies, for societies which do understand the notion of a common good, both domestically and internationally. That links in neatly to the one question I've had through from um, Richard Oates, who's one of our Editors Club members. Uh, if anyone's interested in Editors Club, by the way, do just Google Editors Club and it will prospect Editors Club and it will um, introduce you to that. Um, uh, and he said that he looked at the pieces and thought they were all nice and interesting. And I'm paraphrasing here, but roughly, why shouldn't we just go back? Why won't we just go back to where we were before? I mean, as Margaret's just been saying, uh, there are a lot of cynical politicians who um, might like be quite um, playing the same sort of games that they were playing before. So, Nairi or Dani, what, why do you think we won't get a vaccine and then go back to business as usual? Danny, go ahead. Okay, well, I mean, for one thing, I think um, there were a lot of things that were going on already before uh, uh, COVID-19 that, that um, so there's, there's, you know, I think Nairi mentioned this, that you know, we've had at least a decade now of uh, retreat from hyper-globalization, and you can see this from uh, in, the, in the numbers on trade, in the numbers from, uh, of, you know, global value chains slowing down uh, China, even though it remains a very big exporter, has stepped back, is, is, uh, is, is, is bringing its supply chains back home, um, and, and backlash uh, that, that we're seeing politically um, uh, to the um, instabilities and the economic anxieties that hyperglobalization created. All of these actually predate COVID-19. So I don't think there is a status stable, sustainable status quo ante uh, that it is possible to return to. However, I think the idea, the question perhaps is whether there is going to be a politically, a, a politically sufficiently strong uh, uh, momentum to move us into uh, a different kind of a more inclusive society, as, as, as Margaret has said. Um, and I think there, I'm, 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 you know, I can't be necessarily very optimistic because I think the, um, the uh, populist right, uh, the ethno-nationalistic authoritarian right has been uh, much better at uh, leveraging uh, the economic and social dislocations and anxieties that crises, um, whether it's driven by globalization or by technology, other other uh, trends, uh, than, than the left has been. And I think the left is still trying to um, come up with a narrative and a set of proposals that, uh, that can capture the moment and speak and, and, and be politically saleable. I think in the, in the current presidential election round in the United States, uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party came close, uh, but still in, in the end lost, lost out uh, to a centrist, uh, Joe Biden. On the other hand, if you wanted to be optimistic, uh, Joe Biden is, is the, the policies that Joe Biden uh, is uh, uh, promoting, whether it's on um, on health insurance and trade, on, on, on the environment, are way to the left than uh, what Hillary Clinton four years ago uh, was, uh, as another centrist in the Democratic Party was, was promoting. So the narrative is changing, um, but whether it's going to coalesce around a, a, a kind of a political momentum that is, a, that is um, able to, um, to, to uh, win ground, uh, against the the the, the uh, populist right, um, uh, um, that is not yet clear. And I, I guess I would answer it, um, Tom, the question by saying, you know, in a previous financial crisis, one a Chinese policymaker used to say, when 
you know, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. And in this crisis, as the tide has gone out, every country has seen a spotlight put on certain vulnerabilities. The really smart countries are countries who are going to shore up those vulnerabilities. They're going to take steps which build them stronger, not just because that will mean their exit out of the crisis is faster, but it will mean that they will become powerful economies afterwards. And if you think about it, COVID-19 kills the most vulnerable people in our society. It kills the elderly, it kills minorities. It's telling, and it kills fewer of those people in countries with better systems. So it's telling us something about what kinds of institutions we need to build. Do we have effective local preventative health care? Do we invest in that, whether it's in poor countries or in wealthy countries? Do we have robust institutions? We've talked about the World Health Organization. It needs to be more robust. But also, if we look in Britain, local government and the relationship between local government and central government has had a terrible spotlight shone on it. The inability of a British government to um, play conductor of an orchestra of political institutions across the country, including at local government, so that they sing together in harmony and create the kind of response that we've seen Germany have Mm. has been a wake-up call for all of us about how do we now invest properly in those institutions so that we've got robust government at local level, at national level, and the two are connected and properly coordinated. Likewise, the relationship between government and business. You know, Germany, within one week of receiving the genome sequence, got companies around the table and universities around the table, and within a week, it had created a test for coronavirus. Um, it would be great to see a Britain in which that kind of mobilization and cooperation is possible. And it's not something you can magic in a crisis. And that I think is the lesson of this crisis. You can't suddenly magic institutions into being in a crisis. You either have well-funded, resilient institutions that hire effective people and reward them for doing a great job, and then you can get through a crisis really well, or you don't. And if you don't, the tide goes out and you get very brutally exposed. The, the very next piece after yours in the, in the printed magazine, which you probably haven't got sent yet because of, because of everything that's going on, um, but is a deep dive into what happened in Germany and just like how with the very same um, start date in terms of when people started dying of COVID and so on, it got the testing in order with its decentralised system that runs on trust in a way that the UK didn't turn out to be able to do, which made an enormous difference in terms of um, how many people have now died is the argument of that piece. Um, Margaret, we're nearly at time and... Um, I wondered if I could just bring you in on the question you've returned to already more than once in your remarks, which is leadership. Um, uh, it is important. There is an election which would be dominating the news um, in an ordinary year, but isn't now, about Donald Trump in November. Do you think that his re-election would be a catastrophe and that getting rid of him could open up all kinds of interesting things or do you think this is really now about deeper tides and whether we've got this kind of monkey in the White House or not isn't going to be decisive in where the world goes after COVID? I, I, look, historians debate this the whole time and, and, and the deep tides matter, I think. Demographic changes matter, social changes matter, economic changes matter, changes in ideas matter. 
But at certain junctures in history, I think it actually matters who is sitting in an office, and particularly if that person has a lot of power. And the leader of the United States has an awful lot of power, um, both to influence but also actual power. And of course, runs the biggest power in the world with the biggest military power. And so I think it actually matters who occupies that office. I mean, Trump, his first term, I think, has been a catastrophe, would have been a catastrophe even without the COVID-19. I think a second term, in my view, would be even worse. He would continue what he's doing already, and that is undermining and dismantling the civil service, the institutions of the American state. He's packing the courts with judges who take a particular view, which I think is not necessarily going to serve all of the American people. He is, I think, stirring up uh, divisions among the Americans. And he, he's, under, under Trump, the United States has basically abdicated its leadership of the world. The idea that the United States would not be involved after this summit last week or, or earlier this week to try and, and provide support and vaccines for the poorer countries. The United States has taken the lead in every major international crisis since 1945. And, and this seems to me a very telling example of the sort of damage that the Trump administration is doing and will go on doing if he gets reelected. So my view is if you think this term has been bad, the next one is the United States and the world tries to pick up and deal with the damage that has been caused by the COVID-19-19 and, and the economic shutdown. I think a second term would be even worse, quite frankly. I, I hate to think in what ways it might play out. Thank you very much. Now, I think we're at time. If any of our speakers wants a, a, a last word, they're welcome to one. They're all looking content. And Chris, has anyone um, sent you a message asking for a question? Yeah, we've had a couple of questions. Um, one, which I think uh, Neri has touched on a little bit, um, but is kind of, um, to, to what extent uh, does the greater connectivity between scientists in different countries mean that organisations like the World Health Organisation are reduced in their kind of impact and the scope of what they can do. I guess it's also kind of tying in a bit with general ideas about globalization and you know, it's a lot easier for people to communicate outside of those big kind of bureaucratic organizations. It's because I think, it, I think it's, it's crucial. I mean, what the World Health Organization has done is provide a platform for scientists to exchange data and research findings. So they have, uh, meetings like this one on zoom or on not necessarily on zoom but they have meetings you know on a very regular basis to exchange things that usually scientists would only exchange in journal publications because each one of them would want their name on the on the publication and what i think this crisis has really shown is you know, there's been a hot debate in the united states should american universities permit chinese students should they permit chinese researchers should they permit um, collaborations with Chinese institutions, which has been part of the US-China tension over the last couple of years. This crisis has shown how powerful those collaborative mechanisms are, because even as politicians on all sides shout at each other, those researchers at Harvard, at a number of different um, universities in China, between Oxford University and China, between the Center for Disease Control in China and the Center for disease control in the United States and Britain's public health officials, they have all been really tightly communicating. The evening before China shared its uh, sequence with the World Health Organization, the head of the Chinese Center for Disease Control was talking to America's head of um, disease control. So those science 
relationships and the relationships between academic institutions, even if the world becomes more competitive and conflictual, are really, really important because that's what citizens of the world rely on in a crisis like this to get us to a medical understanding of the problem and an ability to fight the virus faster. Thank you very much. I think because we're now a few minutes over, I think we should um, stop. Thanks everyone for coming along. Um, thanks especially to our um, uh, three stellar panelists for um, giving up what here in the UK we realized after we set this up is now a bank holiday afternoon to um, get stuck in. And, um, you know, I suppose what it makes you realize is that as well as everyone having to keep safe, the world um, is going to have to do a lot of thinking if um, it's going to keep safe and healthy in the future. There's an awful lot at stake um, um, away from the immediate medical crisis and beyond it. So I hope we at Prospect will be able to keep an eye on a lot of that and the debates around it as it goes forward. Um, but for the moment, all of you stay safe. Um, thanks very much for tuning in and um, goodbye for now. Okay, that's all from us. Huge thanks to you for listening, to our subscribers for tuning in, and especially to Dani Roderick, Nairi Woods and Margaret Macmillan. You can also read the three essays that each of them wrote on our website or in the printed magazine. So if you enjoyed the chat, do go to prospectmagazine.co.uk and press subscribe. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and review. Rebecca Liu is our producer. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.